Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Glad you're with us, uh, college students. Really glad you're with us and glad uh, you're back here uh, in, in Durham. And as a former campus minister, uh, parts of me miss the f- first few weeks of being on campus and college ministry, the excitement and the buzz of, of all that's new. And so I'm glad y'all are with us. Uh, campus ministers, glad you're with us this morning as well. Uh, just a heads up for all of you, we are planning to start our new sermon series uh, September 13th, lab, uh, the weekend after Labor Day. We're going to be doing a series on the seven deadly sins, which I'm very excited about. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. Uh, I have never participated or been a part of a church that's gone through that and heard some people preach, and I'm excited as God's been working in my heart uh, as I've been delving into these seven deadly sins. And so September 13th, we'll start that. Uh, Also, it's going to be a big Sunday for us as a church because we're going to be, as you heard, signing up for city groups and life groups. There's going to be a huge, not huge, but a few food trucks uh, on the outside here, hopefully, and doing a food truck rodeo. Uh, So stick around September 13th. It'll be a good Sunday. I don't know if you were here last Sunday. Uh, Some of you might have been here last Sunday, but we had an incredible day of worship. Uh, we had an unbelievable honor to hear Dr. John Perkins uh, preach to us. And one thing that I felt Dr. Perkins did a masterful job at was that he lifted our eyes up last Sunday morning, if you were here. He, he called us to lift our eyes up and to see the bigger story of redemption, to see that the biggest problem that we all have, no matter our race, our socioeconomic class, the biggest problem that we all have is sin. And the greatest and only solution to sin is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He called our eyes to look up. And this morning, I'm praying along the same lines. We, we pray that every Sunday. But this morning in particular, I'm praying that God would lift our eyes up to see the grandeur of who He is, to behold the greatness of God. Our vision, as it's stated in your bulletin, Christ Central Church is a Christ-centered, cross-cultural community that exists for the glory of God and the good of Durham. And over our 19 months as a church, I think we've preached on being centered upon Jesus. Uh, And I hope and pray that you always know we're centered upon Christ and the gospel of grace, that everything we do is through that lens of the grace offered to us in Jesus. I think we've preached on being unified as a body across uh, racial and socioeconomic lines, We've preached about living in and for the city of Durham, the flourishing and the good of this city that God's placed us in. And so this morning, I want to lift our eyes up to see that we exist for, and the church's chief end is the glory of God, the glory of God. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read a short passage out of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, this is God's word to us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray. God, I ask that this morning you would come. And God, wherever we are this morning, if we're struggling, 
if we're sad, if we're discouraged, if we're bored, if we're addicted, if we're self-righteous, if we're prideful, lift our eyes up. Away from ourselves, away from our circumstances, lift our eyes to behold the glory, the glory of God. Lord, we need to experience and understand you this morning. So change us as a result of being with you. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. Remove me so that you might be seen, Lord Jesus. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. If you've ever experienced or witnessed something that took your breath away, it just took your breath away, you could not express it in words. When I graduated from college 16 years ago, I moved to Chongqing, China. Uh, and Chongqing's nickname is the Foggy City. And, and that's not necessarily because of natural fog. It's one of the largest industrial cities in China. Uh, and it should more likely be termed the polluted city, but it's called the Foggy City. And I love it. I, lo- I love Chongqing. Uh, I love my time there. But in a calendar year, we would see maybe the sun five to ten times in a whole year. No sunlight in the midst of fog, day after day, begins to take its toll on you, right? Most every day was gray and smoky, and in the winter, it would rain often. And it was a cold rain, kind of get in your bones, kind of a cold. And, and you mix that with gray and fog, I mean, it just kind of wore you down. And every year, I lived in China, we would take a two-week trip to Thailand, to the beaches in Thailand. We would go to places like PP Island, which if you've ever seen the old movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, The Beach, that's where it was filmed. Crystal blue waters, white sand, grassy mountains rising up out of the ocean. Visiting PP Island after five months of cold, gray, gray smog would leave me speechless. The sheer beauty was overwhelming. In my second year of seminary, I was going through a difficult time. Some of you have heard me mention before. I was questioning my faith in the Lord during seminary, rebellious in some ways, dealing with family issues. And I went to visit a friend in Atlanta, Georgia, and we went to the Fox Theater to see a music concert. And in this dark time, we sat fourth row center stage with one of my favorite musicians, and I was overcome. In the midst of this dark time, overcome by the beauty of music. Uh, Some of you know this too, but I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, My dad went to Auburn University, and so we cheered hard for Auburn football. We loved it, still do. And there was nothing like being a little child and seeing the eagle is released still. Every pregame, and the eagle, I've said this before too, flies around the stadium. And the whole crowd, 86,000 people, are going nuts. So I'm kind of giddy that we're one week away from college football. One week. It's like Christmas, here we come. And uh, a big present. So as a 37-year-old man, I'm still fired up when I see the eagle raised. And the whole stadium shouts, glory, glory to Old Auburn. Glory, glory to Old Auburn. Now, I've been living in the Triangle for eight years. This is basketball country. And I have had the privilege of going to some amazing games. My first year as the RUF campus minister at UNC, we won the national championship. I kind of got spoiled. But we won the national championship, and I experienced 50,000 people 
rushing onto Franklin Street, jumping over fires. I think Vance Faulkner was there, uh, jumping over fires. And it was unreal, celebrating the glory of Carolina basketball. Now, hold, hold on, Duke. I'm getting to you. <laughs> last year, last year, I got to check off a bucket list item. Bucket list. I went to the Duke versus UNC basketball game in Cameron. There is no greater basketball game, no greater venue to watch a basketball game. Not a bad seat in the house, students going nuts, crazy towel guy getting the, getting the crowd going, right? Duke won the game in overtime. Tyus Jones took it over, went on to win the national championship. Coach K winning as coach in school history. The glory, right, of Duke basketball. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome. And this letter, if you've ever read it, is chock full of Pauline theology. But the main thrust of this letter that Paul is writing is to declare God's saving plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile. In chapters 9 through 11, which we are coming out of into this passage, are some difficult portions of Scripture to understand for many. Yet they're some of the most profound and beautiful portions of Scripture in the whole Bible. And what Paul does at the end of chapter 11 is remarkable. He stops in the middle of this letter, and he is overcome by who God is. He's overwhelmed by the beauty of God. He has to stop and praise God. He writes, to him be the glory forever. Paul is swept up into the glory of God. It's been said that there is no undevotional theology nor untheological devotion. Let me say that again. There's no undevotional theology nor untheological devotion, meaning the two are not separated. An understanding of God theologically leads to praise. And if we think we can offer praise without being informed theologically, we are fooling ourselves because some view of God is driving our praise. So theology shouldn't scare us. Paul's theology leads him to doxology. Paul's study of God leads him to be overwhelmed in devotion. So let me rephrase the question I started with this morning. Have you ever experienced God and God's glory in such a way that you were overwhelmed and maybe couldn't even express it in words? Why can I get fired up about traveling to beautiful places like P.P. Island? or going to music concerts, or watching Auburn play football, or UNC Duke basketball, why can the glory of a beautiful place, the glory of a concert, the glory of college sports overwhelm me? And all these things, by the way, are good things. Things, though, that should ultimately point us to God, and I find myself settling with being overwhelmed by these created things rather than letting them lead me to my Creator. We need to be led to see the glory of God and to become like Paul, overwhelmed by the nature and the character of our God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which we use here often, says God is infinite and eternal and unchanging. Infinite, eternal, and unchanging in His being, in His wisdom, in His power, in His holiness, in His justice, and His goodness, and His truth. That's glorious. Amen? 
I heard one pastor say, if God is not glorious, He's not worth dying for. And if He's not worth dying for, He's not worth living for. Our God's glorious. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah writes of his experience in Isaiah 6, verse 3. The seraphim called one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I want us to look at two things from our passage this morning. Pretty simple. God has no equal, therefore God is worthy of praise. God has no equal, therefore God is worthy of praise. Let's look first. God has no equal. As Paul is praising God at the end of chapter 11, there are two things really in particular that overwhelm him about who God is. The wisdom and the wealth of God. The wisdom and the wealth. We see this in verses 33 to 35. That there is no other that has wisdom like God. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Paul stops in the midst of this letter as he's writing about the saving plan for Jew and Gentile and then he says in effect as he's overwhelmed by the God of this salvation, who in the whole wide world would have ever thought up this rescue and salvation plan? Who would have thought this up? Who would have made up this plan that Paul lays out in the book of Romans? If you've never read it, let me give you a brief overview. Listen to this plan. Chapter 1, Paul writes, that The whole world turned away and suppressed the truth of God. Chapter 3 of Romans, That there was no one righteous. Jew and Gentile alike, all are sinful. Chapter 4, Faith is the very thing that brings us into the family of God, that makes us righteous right before God, as it did with Abraham in Genesis. Chapter 5, faith is to be in the new and better Adam. There's a second Adam, the Lord Jesus, who lived a perfectly obedient life and is now our perfect representative if we place our faith in Him. And what's true of Christ is true of us. And then he reminds yet again in chapter 6, all are dead, level playing field, all are dead in sin but we're made alive by faith in Jesus. And then chapter 8, the whole world is groaning for redemption, and Jesus came to redeem the whole world. And then chapters 9 through 11, that God is proclaiming this truth to all nations and all people, and that God is faithful to draw people to himself. I mean, what human being, what human author could have or would have written this redemption story? This gospel of grace, this gospel of a God sending His only Son to die on a cross so that we might have life and so that the whole world could be redeemed. This extension of grace that says that you don't have to do anything to earn it. It is a free gift offered by God. Seriously, think about it. Most of us hesitate when something free is offered to us, don't we? We hesitate. I would always laugh when I was doing campus ministry and it'd be the fall and all the campus ministries are doing their thing, trying to get students to come in to their ministry and we would hand out free ice cream or free pizza, right? Come, come visit our ministry. And there was always like students would be like, free ice cream. What, what I need to do for it? <laughs> like, it was like, what, I got to give you blood. What I, like what I have to do, right? There's always a catch, right? When some, something free is offered. Sometimes there is, but a lot of the times I think there's an issue in our own hearts that we just don't know how to receive something freely offered. 
None of us would make up this gospel of grace, this free offer of salvation found in Christ. And Paul quotes Isaiah 40, verse 13, uh, in verse 34. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? That's the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah is dealing with the same thing that Paul is dealing with in the Roman church. Isaiah is writing to the Israelites in exile in Babylon. And the Israelites are fearful. They're doubting. They're trying to understand what's happening. And they're wondering how they will be saved. How will they experience salvation from, from such a strong nation like Babylon? And Isaiah tells them, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Isaiah declares to the Israelites what Paul is declaring to the Christians in Rome and what God is declaring to us this morning. God alone is wise. God alone is sovereign. He is the creator king over all nations, all people, all things. He has no... He stands alone in his wisdom. And he needs no counsel from us, though we like to offer it, <laughs> don't we? All of you here are smart people. From old to young, all of you are smart. But God does not need your wisdom to help explain his ways. God does not need your advice on how to go about caring about His rescue and salvation plan. The nations are a drop in the bucket in comparison to God. President Obama is a powerful man in a powerful position. And there will be a newly elected president soon who will hold that same power. But God says in Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God is the all-wise God who stands alone in his plan of salvation. He does not need our advice. He is the creator king ruling over all. Now I know for some of you here this morning that's comforting. And for some of you here this morning that feels threatening. Because we live in a culture and a society that really has developed into the popular 1970s bumper sticker, question authority. We've developed, we live well with that mantra, question authority. Growing up, I did. I grew up always wanting to test my parents. They would tell me, Daniel, don't run out into the road. I'd run right out into the road. Don't go ride the three-wheeler at Patrick Wren's house. I went and rode the three-wheeler and I broke my arm, right? <laughs> I question authority. I still do. And I know you. Because we are a people in a society who place great value on personal autonomy and personal authority to do whatever, whenever. And our text this morning is reminding us, God is the creator. We're the creation. So who are you, O oh man, that you should talk back to God? That we should try and counsel God? The second thing that overwhelms Paul about God is God's wealth. Not just his wisdom, but his wealth. Look at verse 35. It says, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, God stands alone in his wealth. He has no equal in all that he possesses. And in verse 35, it's a quote from Job, 35, or Job 41, verse 11, where Job, uh, God says to Job, who has a claim against me that I must pay him? See, Job in the book of Job in chapters 38 to 41 is complaining. Sounds familiar in my life, complaining to God 
about how God is unjust for him to be suffering like he is. And so God speaks to Job. And God says, no one has first given to God that I should repay him. No one has given to God that God owes them anything. And then he tells Job, before you were Job, I existed. I created you. I have set the course of history. I have created everything. I am in debt to no one. God rebukes Job. Who are you to question, Job? My goodness. And think that I owe you something. It's quite amusing how we can say that we believe God is sovereign, that God is the creator, where is creation, but then we live and we act like God owes us something. Don't we, don't we live with a sense of entitlement? I know I do. Uh, my old RUF area coordinator kindly rebuked me uh, in my second year RUF campus minister. This was about six years ago. He lovingly sat me down. He said, Daniel, I, I think you have a sense of entitlement. <laughs> and I said, well, wh- why, do, why do you think that? And he said, well, because it was and it is RUF policy for a, for a campus minister to not have an intern until their third year. And I desperately wanted an intern. Uh, I believed I, I deserved one. And I stated my case for why I deserved one. I told him, look, I, I, I did campus ministry for five years with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now crew. Uh, yeah, I've got some experience. I inherited a, 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 an account that was 25000 in deficit. Uh, the ministry that I have now is about 65% girls, uh, and, it, and the ministry was growing. I deserve it, right? I've earned the right to have an intern. Are you have owed it to me? And thankfully, he called me out on my sense of entitlement. And that train of thinking can be very similar towards God. Like Job, we can say, God, look. Look all I've done for you. God, look all that I've given up for you. Look how I use my gifts for you. Look the way that the way I love people for you. God, now you owe me. We had an ultrasound on Wednesday with our soon-to-be second child. And I wasn't anxious. This was like the big 18, 19-week ultrasound where you see the sex of the child, you see if there are any abnormalities to the child. And, and Wednesday morning rolled around, and I began to get very anxious. What if there's something off? What if our child's not healthy? And I started to pray, and I started to feel like, God, look, Rachel and I, look what we're doing. God, I've, I've been doing ministry for a long time, and God, just please give us a healthy child. God, you kind of owe us. You owe us a healthy child. No, he does not. God is not in debt to me, and he's not in debt to you. God owes us nothing. He's God. We're not. Before we were born, God existed completely. He did not need you. He did not need me. This is hard. It's really hard for prideful and entitled people to swallow that he doesn't need us. I heard an analogy used describing this reality that our sense of kind of God needs us would it would be looking at a picture of your parents on their wedding day, right? Maybe it's in your home, parents on their wedding day, and they look so happy. They're smiling. And then you kind of think, well, how can they be so happy? How in the world can they be so happy? I haven't been born yet. (laughs) Right? I haven't been born. It's subtle. But we can think that God should have an 
happy before we were born. No. God existed before the foundation of the world. He has always been in perfect community as the Father, Son, and Spirit. He has been writing and carrying out His plan of salvation, and no plan of His can be thwarted. God doesn't need us because He is rich in Himself. And catch this. This is the simple gospel. He doesn't need us, but God loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die on a cross for us. He spent His wealth on us because He loves you and me. All that God does is good. Amen? And all that God does is loving, even though we don't always understand it. Sometimes it can feel like the longer we're a Christian, the less exciting than Christianity becomes. I don't know if you've ever felt that. You kind of feel like you know it all and you've been around, right? But this text is saying that we can never explore all of who God is. That we can never plumb the depths of God. That we should be constantly curious people, always exploring, always seeking out more of who God is. For He is in Himself wise and wealthy apart from us. And so when we see this, this is my second point, there's only one response. When God has no equal, therefore we must worship. It's a responsive worship. I love verse 36. Look, look at verse 36. This, by the way, is the Christian world and life view. If you want to know what a Christian world and life view is, it's verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. These are the three greatest prepositions in the whole Bible. (laughs) From, through, and to Him. From. God is the source. He's the creator of all things. Through. God is the sustainer and the agent of all things. And to. God is the goal end of all things. The Christian God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the source, agent, and last end of everything. So let me say it again. God is complete in Himself. He doesn't need us. He's the Creator who created out of nothing in the beginning. He is the agent who saved us by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And He is the climax, the in the alpha and the omega so why did god create the world for his glory for his glory westminster confession question and answer number one maybe you've heard this what is the chief end of man what's the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify god and enjoy him forever well what is god's chief end god's chief end is to glorify god The ultimate end and aim in everything is God's glory. Now, maybe you're thinking, that sure does sound self-centered. Sounds like God is some narcissist (laughs) obsessed with himself. God is God-centered. So, yeah, in in a way, God is self-centered. But listen to this quote. What is arrogant and prideful in human beings being self-centered, is essential in God. For there is none greater 
than himself. It is essential for God to be God-centered. For there is none greater. If God was not God-centered, if he was you and I-centered, he would be an idol worshiper. God has no equal, therefore he must be glorified. Let me say it in another way that's even more humbling for us. God's chief purpose in creating the world was not just your salvation. It's not just this or that person's salvation. God's saving plan, His rescue plan, this gospel is immensely important, and we declare it every Sunday, but it is a means unto the ultimate end of God being glorified. Paul's end in this passage says, To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Worship is the concluding word. Amen is Paul's desire for God's glory to be realized in the world. I love this quote by an old Puritan, Jonathan Edwards. He says, the greatest moments, he was a pastor, theologian, says this, the greatest moments of my life have not been those that have concerned my own salvation, but those that I have been carried into communion with God and beheld His beauty and desired His glory. I rejoice and yearn to be emptied and annihilated of self in order that I might be filled with the glory of God and Christ alone. We must lift our eyes away from ourselves and behold the glory of God. Let me apply, apply this just a little bit more concretely. If God's greatest end is His glory, and our chief end is His glory, and we have a Christian world and life view that says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, then we must understand that your wisdom and your ability to think and your ability to reason and dream and comprehend and invent are to be used not just for yourself but for God's glory. The wealth that you have, and we all have wealth, varying degrees in this morning, but the wealth that we've been given is to be spent not just on ourselves, but on God's glory and His purposes. It means that when we pray, our ultimate prayer, our ultimate prayer, we can pray this, but our ultimate prayer is not, Lord, give me just this desire, or give me this spouse, or give me a new job, a new whatever, our chief prayer must be yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And I promise you, if you pray that, and that's your chief prayer, 100% guarantee God will answer it. God will answer that prayer. People in this city of Durham, people on your campus, Duke and Chapel Hill, Central, need to see people who are overwhelmed with the glory of God. People who forget ourselves because we're caught up in the beauty of who He is. George Whitfield, one of the greatest American preachers ever, when preaching to thousands, thousands would come hear Whitfield preach. And he would say this often, let the name of Whitfield perish as long as God is glorified. Let the name of Whitfield perish as long as God is glorified. So, let me ask you as I end, who is the center of your world? Who's the center of your world? If you're honest.
May we be able to say with Whitfield, may our name perish as long as God is glorified that we might know and we might believe from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Let's pray.